This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this Wednesday afternoon. It's great to have your company. I'm Cassie Huff and I'm very glad you could join me. This run of warmer weather as we head towards summer means many South Australian farmers have finally been able to get out into paddocks and start harvesting. But some paddocks haven't looked too pretty with all this moisture creating the ideal scenario for weeds. And this season that we've got this year, we're really, really concerned because we've already got weeds that are probably three times the size they should be at this time of year because of all the extra moisture. That's just going really crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, some paddocks are just getting overrun. I'll have more on that soon. You'll also meet South Australia's new Cherry King. First up today, though, irrigators from Manham to the Murray Mouth at Wellington can receive funds to upgrade off-farm infrastructure. It's part of a Murraylands and Riverland Landscape Board program to improve water security with a pool of $3 million available to water licence holders. Expressions of interest are due by mid-January. And while we're talking water has... uh, The uh, rain continues in the far west uh, in some parts. It has been raining there for a while. The New South Wales State Emergency Service says it's important to follow local authorities for the latest advice for road conditions. This follows on from major flooding at the Darling River at Louth and Tilpa and the Bureau of Meteorology predicting the water at Louth that will peak near 13.6 metres on Friday. The Bureau says the Darling River at Wilcannia is also expected to exceed the major flood level of 10.4 metres today. So there's a pretty big river there in the far west of New South Wales. Yusuf Saudi spoke with SES Media Officer David Rankin about what to know, especially in the lead-up to Christmas. Look, certainly we've seen pretty substantial flooding along the Darling River over the last few months. Burke peaked last Wednesday, the 23rd of November. The issue we're seeing at Burke now is it wasn't peaked at 13.95 metres Last week, it's only dropped seven centimetres in as many days. So what we are seeing is quite a prolonged flooding in that community and we probably expect that the major flood level will be, the water won't go below it until around Christmas time, so the 20th to the 22nd of December. So there's still three or so weeks of pretty significant flooding in the Burke community. Just asking people to stay out of that Louth Tilpa area. The residents of Tilpa had already evacuated that community so it was just a matter of that evacuation warning becomes a warning for people in and around the area who may be traveling due to the multiple roads that are closed we expect there'll be a lot of road closures right the way through that community well into the new year again so how much contact have you been having with locals along the river system as some of these areas are expected to peak and have already look we've had plenty of contact from local graziers and we've been doing resupply now, as I said, for quite some time. So if people are, particularly as the water continues to move south through the likes of Wilcannia and Menindee and what have you, and perhaps people are experiencing elevated river levels that they haven't seen for some time, we're really encouraging people to get in early, you know, around the Wilcannia, Menindee, Batundi, Pooncarry communities. Get in nice and early and stock up now while you have the opportunity, but know that if you do run short, the SES is there to give you a hand. When you were touching upon Wilcannia and Menindee, how are those places going at the moment when it comes to 
water levels and and flooding and the yeah, safety. Uh, we're looking at well, Kenya exceeding the major flood level ten point four meters, and we think based on the predictions of the bureau that it should get to eleven meters around Christmas time. I think. Certainly as we move further south to the likes of Menindee, that the water is being managed through Water New South Wales in terms of the releases into that community. And like the community, we are responding to the levels of water that are being released through the Menindee Lakes. So we'll be working very closely with Water New South Wales over the next few weeks, working with them on their plans for either increased or decreased water through Menindee Lakes. And then we'll be responding to that subsequent impact on the community as, as um, the water levels change through the Menindee Weir. And, you know, I understand that, it, you know, it might be early to think about it, but I guess like when you talk about resupplies in the area, how are you going about supplies for delivering around the Christmas time and how would that work out? Do you know? Our Christmas deliveries for anyone who is isolated won't change from now. Well, we have, I'll be working Christmas Day. A lot of the SES staff and our support staff from other organisations, we have received amazing support from all of our partner organisations in emergency services. We'll all be working over the Christmas period, as will our helicopter pilots and what have you, and people will be able to receive resupply over the Christmas period. What we are asking is if you foresee yourself being isolated at Christmas time, perhaps get in nice and early and request any food that you would like and medicines and all those sorts of things. The Probably the limit will be on any toys and, and what have you, we're probably not going to be able to play Santa with our helicopters on Christmas Eve, unfortunately. Um, but the resupply really is for emergency and, and important necessary goods, foods, medicines, dog food, all those sorts of things. So we're certainly planning at the moment to be operational right the way through the Christmas and New Year period. There'll be no change to the rostering that as we currently exist with our resupply, which is you know, almost daily resupplies a lot of areas in and around the Darling River Basin and beyond. Probably really important that you plan now and um, start thinking about the food and what have you that we'll need for Christmas because I think we may get swamped at the last minute with a lot of requests. So perhaps think about as early as you possibly can about being resupplied and then uh, we can certainly continue the resupply program as we have done for the last few months across the Western Plains and far Western South Wales. There's two things that are happening at the moment. A lot of travellers are still coming into the region and using Google Maps and where there are major flooded roads, Google Maps is throwing them into all sorts of back roads and what have you. And as we know out this way, once dirt roads get a bit of moisture on them, they're pretty much impassable right across the community. So whilst we've got flooding in the area, a lot of the roads are also closed just because the nature of the road surface itself is damp and not conducive to driving. So if you are in the area and you're listening as you're driving through, what is a wonderful neck of the woods out here in in the Broken Hill and you know, far west parts of New South Wales. Just please be aware that there's a lot of water about. There are a lot of closed roads and our local units aren't just around the corner to come and visit you. So if you are in an isolated part of, the, part of the state and happen to be trapped in floodwaters because you've made a really poor decision, you could be finding yourself stranded for some time while... That was SES Media Officer David Rankin speaking with Yusuf Saudi there. Some good words to heed there. Do pay attention to closed roads because there'll be a lot of them over this Christmas period if you're driving around the far west of New South Wales and parts of New South Wales, Victoria and even South Australia potentially as well. Now, speaking of this wetter weather, this sweater than usual spring has not only delayed harvest across the state, it's also helped weeds thrive. The Northern and York Landscape Board is advising landholders to follow a five-step plan to keep weeds under control and stop them spreading, especially after treating a plant in Oruru that originated in Western Australia. Team leader David Hughes spoke with Christian Komenos about some of the weeds of concern. 
One that we're really worried about is Silver Leaf Nightshade. We've already seen that really get away quite early and, and quite strongly, and now they're growing quite aggressively. Another one's African Root, especially in the rangeland towards the Flinders. Uh, we are really worried about the burr weeds, like cowtrop and khaki weed, innocent weed. And they're not quite coming up through yet, but one that is is Nagura burr. That's really taken off as well and yeah unfortunately some of the unpalatable summer grasses such as African love grass, buffle grass and kulatai grass are spreading and continuing to get worse in the area and with the extra moisture this year is just going to be a really difficult season over the summer for weeds. Is there a way to permanently get rid of them or is it just continuously Uh, preventing them? We're sort of giving five tips at the moment and so our first tip is to act early or quickly so as soon as they germinate they'll just take off and they'll set seed really quickly so our second one is to try and keep some cover or competition so the weeds don't have this bare ground that they can thrive in so a lot of people are out slashing fire breaks and things like that to try and not scalp the ground when they put the fire breaks in so keep at least up to 10 centimetres of growth. Also we're saying create a, a weed bay or, or some safe spot that you go past quite often where you do clean your equipment if you're bringing hay in for the first time or something like that so any weeds that do hit your rider are sort of in that one spot or in that one paddock that you go past all the time so you can see them when they do germinate the fourth thing is we're asking people to work together as a team approach and even share knowledge if, if there's a weed that they don't know so working with their neighbours and if a neighbour sees a weed on their neighbour's property just politely maybe mention it and, and just share that knowledge to, to get that joint target approach but sometimes they are a bit difficult to identify so those people that do know um, sharing that knowledge is really important and and the fifth one is probably where we come in where you seek advice from your landscape board or um, we're encouraging people to use the PERSA weed control handbook which has um, all the information on uh, declared weeds and and lists all the different treatments um, whether it be in bushland or vineyard or or, uh, general farm settings which has really good advice too. And those treatments, is it just, you know, getting the shovel and getting the roots out and spraying them or is there more techniques Um, to it? It it depends on the weed. So with the deep-rooted perennial weeds, you'll you'll be digging uh, many metres and and just about impossible to get all the roots out and they can actually regrow from root fragments. So you could actually be spreading the weed by by trying to chop it out. But those weeds, the African rue and the silver leaf nightshade, in most areas are fairly rare and a lot of weeds you can go and get on top of by just chopping, even cutting the taproot. Uh, in cowtrop's case, uh, it will die straight away or, or very quickly. But, but making sure if, if, say, you're cutting the taproot of cowtrop and it's full of burrs, if you can pick those burrs up so they don't spread throughout the district uh, is really important. But um, unfortunately, a lot of those burr weeds will set seed really quickly. So it's continual checking to make sure you don't let them get away and yet yeah, and this season that we've got this year, we're, we're really, really concerned because we've already got weeds that are <laughs> probably three times the size they should be at this time of year because of all the extra moisture. They're just going really crazy. How detrimental is it if you don't get on top of your weeds, especially for landholders? So they can suffer you know, yield decreases of 20 to 40% with some of the deep rooted perennial weeds and the cost to try and you know, eradicate them over time can you know, be tens or you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars with the deep-rooted perennial weeds once they've taken over a large area. Very, very expensive and, and takes many years to, to sort of 
more or less uh, control them and, and, and then uh, to eradicate a weed once it's established is quite expensive in time and labour and just looking and, and in, in different chemicals or techniques that you're using whether if it is using diesel or um, by ploughing or, or cultivating or, or herbicides it, it's it's very expensive so the best is not to actually allow them to establish so once you do see a new plant is to jump on it straight away and we are finding some plants um, we had one last week um, from Western Australia that turned up near Oruru, um, Clove, uh, Cannamile, um, which is a problem plant in other states and um, we've got that treated today. So um, we're on the lookout as well. So we don't want new weeds establishing in the region. Certainly don't. Hopefully they get on top of that one. That was Landscape Board Team Leader David Hughes speaking with Christian Komenos. It's 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, good pastures, uh, favourable grain and uh, uh, sheep and livestock markets are enticing sheep producers to increase their flock sizes in the next 12 months. That's according to a recent Meat and Livestock Australia and Wool Innovation Report, Australian Wool Innovation Report, where almost 2,000 meat, sheep and wool producers were surveyed. MLA market analyst Jenny Lim says it's looking positive ahead. This survey really looks at um, the producer, sheep producer intentions for the next 12 months and it shows that, you know, there's a positive outlook for the industry moving forward um, and producers are really looking to increase their flock sizes or maintain numbers and expand operations. So it's looking really positive for the industry. And what were some of the questions producers were asked in the survey? So a lot of the questions were based around how many lambs they had, breed breakdowns, what their sentiments around the industry is and what they're expecting to do in the next 12 months. We also had uh, questions around you know, current issues that they're feeling prevalent in the industry at the moment and also what kind of sales channels they're using so we can track that movement of um, sheep and lamb sales. And sale yards continued to be the dominant sale channel. Uh, are we likely to see that trend continue? Yeah, so it's really encouraging to see that sale yards continue to be the primary sales channel for sheep and lamb sales, and it highlights the importance um, of sale yards in the industry. Uh, One thing I do have to point out is that probably more transactions do occur through over-the-hooks or direct sales, and this is just because it's the primary method for the larger producers over 20 thousand sheep Um, but more producers are using sale yards as a number and um, it's really cool to see that people are still getting into the community and selling through the sale yards. And the survey noted that almost 50% of producers are looking at increasing their flocks. What's caused that confidence in the market? Yeah, so the outlook for um, the forecast outlook for the the coming 12 months is looking really good for sheep producers in those sheep producing regions. Um, And that's creating confidence in the market. And people are still looking to increase their flock sizes and expand um, their operations. Um, And, you know, 47% of them are expecting good conditions in the next 12 months. So that's really improving that sentiment in the market. And when you're talking about those good conditions, what are they specifically? Yeah, so we're seeing um, really good pasture growth conditions. So, you know, the expected third La Nina is going to really push out that um, feed availability. And there's also, you know, a really good grain crop coming through in the next, in this harvest. So it's really allowing producers to expand those operations with the feed on ground that's going to be available to them. 
And I guess what comes with expanding operations is the need for more labour. Um, that was mentioned as a potential hurdle for the industry. What, what else was flagged um, by the survey participants as, as a difficulty at the moment? Input costs were another issue that um, producers raised. They are expecting an increase in input costs such as fertiliser, fuel, um, feed, those kind of things. Um, but actually there's there's no expectation of changes in land prices, which is quite positive to see as we've seen quite high prices in the last 12 months. So that's um, something that's really positive to see for the producers. And like you said, 65% are expecting it to be more difficult to um, get skilled labour in. And, you know, we're, we'll hopefully see some immigration happening in the next 12 months that will alleviate that pressure in the agriculture industry as a whole. There's been a rise in sheep meat. What does that look like? Yeah, so we're seeing um, a great interest in the sheep meat um, breeds and that can be seen in the breed breakdown in the in the report. We can see that 35% of the flock are actually prime lambs um, and that's really positive in the sheep meat industry um, where majority of the national sheep flock is um, merino. Uh, so we are seeing a keen interest in other uh, less dominant breeds such as shedding, which is purely a, uh, a meat uh, breed and that's really um, great for the industry moving forward. Meat and Livestock Australia Market Analyst Jenny Lim speaking with Dimitri Panataris and the uh, 325 South Australian producers surveyed, 41% of them said they'd increase their flocks in 2023. That could be a 4% rise to 4.69 million lambs. That's an increase of around 170 thousand lambs a lot of lambs there speaking of lambs we'll head to the markets now with peter kerr good afternoon cassie this is the mount gambia cattle report for the 30th of november numbers these a little at mount gambia they just shouted 778 head of live weight and open auction cattle these sold to the usual field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker interest quality was good however pricing took another hit in another cheaper market Fearless use of the trade made from 448 to 510 cents. Similar heifers from 400 to 470. Feeders sought steers from 444 to 498 and heifers from 446 to 472 cents with some restocker support from 464 to 525 cents a kilogram over both sexes. Yielding steers to trade buyers reached 460 cents. Similar heifers returned from 400 to 450. Feeders operated from 405 to 452 cents on the steers and from 424 to 440 cents on the heifers, with some restocker activity to 474 cents a kilogram over both sexes. Crow and steers and bullocks made from 380 to 434 cents to the trade, feeder support from 412 to 432. Crow and heifers to the trade made from 345 to 420. Manufacturing steers returned from 310 to 330 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows lost 10 cents as they ranged from 308 to 350 cents with lighter lots also to the trade, making from 255 to 306 cents a kilogram. With some restocker activity to 398 cents and feeders operated from 285 to 328. Heavy bulls ranged from 322 to 380 cents a kilogram. Cassie, I've also got the Dublin reports from SALE up there yesterday. There was a yarding of 8,273, generally good quality crossbred and merino lambs. There was the usual group of trade and processor buyers present. However, there appeared to be a general reluctance to bid with any amount of gusto and prices for trade and heavyweight lambs, both crossbred and merinos, these $20 to $30 a head. Feeder and restocker buyers were more prominent than in past weeks. However, prices remain on a par with last week's poor returns for vendors. Hoglets were again ignored and prices declined another 10 to $15 a head. Light crossbred lambs made from $90 to $140, light trades from $140 to $150, heavy crossbreds from $149 to 
with a few extra heavies from 180 to the high of $200. Light merino lands from 60 to 100. Light trays from 105 to 132. Heavy merino lands from 140 to 175. And there were no extra heavies to quote. Light hoggers range from 50 to 80 with the heavy hoggers from 80 to 120. At the following sheep sale, there was a high-quality yarding of 4,362 good-quality sheep. These sold at diminishing demand from the usual group of trade and processor buyers. Heavyweight user in abundance demand was only negligible and prices eased to levels not seen in recent years. Weathers were again scarce or a large consignment of young February shorn sheep sold up to $141. Rams were again virtually unwanted and values remain depressed here. Light used from 60 to $80, the heavy used from 80 to 110 Light weathers from 65 to 80 the heavy weathers from 90 up to that 141 as range range from 50 to $100 a head. At the following cattle sale, there was a larger yarding of 279 mixed cattle. These sold at easing demand provided by the yield trade processor and feeder buyers, although with one prominent buyer missing. As was generally expected, prices followed recent market trends and values receded 50 to 100 cents per kilogram live weight across all categories. Fuelers to the trade from 450 to 550, store types from 480 to 560. Yearlings to the trade from 350 to 450 cents, store types from 360 to 440. Trade weight cows from 260 to 280 cents, store types from 200 to 230 as heavy bulls range from 220 to 300 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter Kerr there. Now, uh, as we approach the first day of summer tomorrow, Jenny Horvath, Senior Forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology, can let us know what's in store weather-wise. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So it's warming up a little. It's going to feel a little bit summery tomorrow by the looks of things. Yeah, that's right. So things have become quite stable. We've got a high-pressure system sitting in the in the bite and a bit of sun around. So, yeah, those temperatures are on the rise and especially as we head into the weekend. So, yes, we've definitely got summer arriving and some summer-like weather coming with it as opposed to quite a wet November that we have seen across the, the state. It was a little bit um, cool in parts this morning, seeing some minimum temperatures well below average, especially around the, the southeast district through there. Just some of those clear skies just um, took the, took the, made it a little bit chilly this morning, but things are starting to warm up across the state. It's a little bit cool in the south. We are still seeing a little bit of cloud around our southeast districts, Kangaroo Island, bottom of the, the peninsulas through there. But otherwise, it's looking pretty, pretty bright and clear for the remainder of the state. Could see a little bit of fog around the the southeast tomorrow morning but not not too much and we'll start to see those winds tend to just a little bit more easterly and that temperature slowly rising on Thursday as that high pressure system starts to make its way across from the bite across the south of the state ultimately on Friday ending up in the Tasman Sea and then starting to direct that more northerly airstream across the the state and pushing those temperatures up as we head into the weekend. So we'll be looking at some of those temperatures getting to be quite hot in the in the west as we head across the weekend. So we'll be watching for some potentially some elevated fire danger as we head into the later part of this week and over the weekend. So it's a bit of a I'll watch this space with those warmer temperatures. Not too windy, so it's a little bit marginal, but nevertheless just be a little bit more mindful with that. We've also got this trough of low pressure that's going to drift across from Queensland on Friday. So we could see a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity Friday afternoon in the northeast of the state and again that could be repeated on Saturday that's just that trough just lingering up there in the far north through there 
got those northerly winds at first on Sunday. We've got a bit of a change coming across from the west, but this change looks like a nice dry summer change moving through. But again, it could be a little bit windy at times, but not too bad at this stage. And then we'll settle into maybe just slightly cooler temperatures for the start of next week and going into more of an onshore pattern. So maybe a little bit of shower activity possible across the agricultural and western parts, but we're not expecting any real significant rainfall then. And for the remainder of the week, we're really not expecting much at all. So um, really it's just those thunderstorms on um, Friday and Saturday that we could be seeing up to sort of five millimetres of rain there. So we are coming into a, a bit of a dry period, Cassie. Well, it's the time of year for it. We just aren't yeah, used to it right. at the moment. It'd be interesting to see the figures for spring, just how wet and cold it's been for South Australia. They'll, yeah, they'll look, on. Yeah, it has been looking like it's going to be um, a wet, a very wet spring for parts across the state and a, and a cooler spring as well. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Jenny Horvat there with the weather forecast in the far west of New South Wales. It's going to be partly cloudy in the upper western tomorrow for the first day of summer. A medium chance of showers in the northeast, most likely in the morning and afternoon. Not much chance of rain elsewhere, but there could be a thunderstorm around. Wind's picking up a little as well. Overnight temperatures getting down to 16 to 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching 25 to 33 degrees. The the lower western will be mostly sunny. Could be a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east. Overnight down to 12 to 15. Daytime temperatures reaching 30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today for the last day of spring for 2022. It's been a funny old spring, but the weather is warming up, so perhaps it's a good time for some summer fruit. There's so many interesting native Australian species that the world loves. Macadamia nuts, however, were only made popular really by the Americans. I think they used to call them Hawaiian nuts or something, even though they're an Australian species. So Australia's finger lime industry wants to make sure the same thing doesn't happen to our finger limes. Unfortunately, native finger limes is a good example where we actually have major global competition from countries including the US, Guatemala and others such as Israel, France, Japan, Spain and Italy are also looking to establish finger lime industries using our native species. And if you've never encountered a finger lime, maybe seek them out. They're amazing. They're such an interesting fruit. They are, they might have a limey sort of flavour, but they don't look like a, a lime really, particularly on the inside. So they're worth checking out. I'll tell you more about them soon. And with the December tomorrow, are you on the hunt for a Christmas tree? Do you like a, a real tree, a, a tree that's been cut down from the live or um, and you get that lovely smell of pine wafting through your house or do you like uh, a form of reusable tree that uh, you might uh, like to just pack away and, and bring out each year. I'd love to know which one you prefer and perhaps if you've got some interesting takes on Christmas trees, text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 We'll get the latest in news headlines first though with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been censured by the House of Representatives for secretly appointing himself to five portfolios during the COVID pandemic. The appointments were kept secret from almost all of his colleagues and while they did not break the law, two subsequent inquiries found they undermined the principles of responsible government. 
Inflation eased slightly last month, according to new monthly Bureau of Statistics figures. The monthly consumer price index rose 6.9% over the year to October, which is down a little from the 7.3% headline inflation rate recorded in September. And the State Emergency Service has activated its emergency alert for the River Murray flood event. Residents along the river are receiving automatic telephone messages about the forecast flooding, as well as potential loss of power and isolation risk from inundated roads. Telephone towers in the region are being used to send the messages to people's mobile phones and fixed line services. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that. Matt Coleman there with your news. Well, Joe Junk Gregorio has been named South Australia's Cherry King after bidding $50,000 for the cherry box that launched the season that was uh, bidded on today. The money raised goes to the Leukaemia Foundation, so a bit of charity there as well. Now, two years ago, the packing shed at Joe's Business Rainbow Fresh was destroyed by fire, so now he's happy to give back after the support he was shown through those tough times. I like it because you give it donate to people for the charity, for the help people handicap for leukemia and this make a lot of help and encourage a bit more people to encourage and put more money on and a bit of publicity too. <laughs> for Rainbow Fresh. <laughs> well because you're the cherry king for a day, but you're actually the lettuce king for life, yeah, aren't you? All right. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. What's what do you actually produce at Rainbow Fresh? Uh, we do in a small pack for hospitality fancy ladies and then we process and we pack and give a distribution two years ago you had a fire go through your yeah. packing house how have you gone recovering from that very very stressful not very easy to handle but we got to manage to put it, go back on the feet and to work and go forward because I go, my next generation come up, Juliet, Maria, and they can do the things. Because I put 50 years of work to where I am there, put a lot of effort in, a lot of work then. I got a lot of passion to do that and I think to pass it on, it can be, it's all right. There was a lot of support for you. Is this your chance to give back after getting support for the, yeah, the fire? Yeah, I got, I got a support. My worker people, the market, the farm and the packer shed gave 100% support. Very stressful. But, and the customer gave me support too because yeah, the customer can't do nothing about it. I wanted to look after the customer. They look after me. That's it. And what are you going to do with the, the cherries, the $50,000 worth of cherries that you're now taking oh, home? All the way, I've got to bring a mama there, got to share in the family, <laughs> I think. That's, that's... And just eat them fresh. You're not going to cook them, just eat them fresh straight. Yeah, yeah, that's, no, no cooking, we cook fresh. <laughs> My grandchildren find that, and so it's all. <laughs> South of Australia's Cherry King, Joe Jung Gregorio, speaking there. Now, pick a local PSA ambassador, Callum Han, was on hand at the cherry auction to offer some tips for cooking up cherries this festive season as well. Oh, look, um, it's may- maybe not your average box of cherries, but I just wanted to do something that was going to do them justice. Um, so, no, especially knowing that, that $50,000 has gone to the Leukemia Foundation, I couldn't be more excited to be involved. And you've made a bit of a cherry trifle, given we are coming into Christmas and Christmas is the time for cherries. How do you think people should perhaps be a bit innovative with their cherries this year? They're obviously great fresh, but what else can they do with them? Yeah, so things like trifle, things like tiramisu, you can... um, 
splits up uh, frozen cherries and make beautiful cherry sorbets. You don't even need an ice cream machine. It's super, super simple. Um, even actually just putting them in the freezer, pitted, and then letting kids munch on them is, is almost like a little cherry kind of ice block uh, is really lovely as well. Um, so if we do get a few warm days this summer, then that's a really nice trick. But I have to say, for me, just eating them um, as they are on Christmas Day after I've eaten a whole bunch of other food is just one of the one of the quintessential Christmas experiences, I think. And for the whole season, just being able to walk past a bowl of cherries in your kitchen and just nibble on one or two from time to time, it's it's really the taste of Christmas in a lot of ways. 100%. I think there's something, like, you, we should be supporting local, we should be shopping local and supporting um, South Australian growers where we can all year round, um, but there is something so... Um, special about cherries, cherries specifically that they are in season exactly when Christmas is every single year. So I think, um, yeah, it's just something that I love to do. I know my family and, and all South Australians love to do. Um, and to support our growers up in the Adelaide Hills that have had a pretty tricky year this year, of course, with the hail and, and, and start the season starting a little bit late with the weather and so on, to support those growers is a really important thing we can do. And hopefully we can enjoy a few cherries along the way. And speaking of growers, it's been quite a cool year, as we all know, which means the cherries are coming on a little later. How best can people support cherry growers, given there may actually not be some cherries around until after Christmas? Yeah, so the good news is is that we are looking like we're going to get um, a pretty bumper crop just in time for, for Christmas, so you can support um, uh, those growers and your family uh, coming uh, into Christmas. Um, but the great news is because it's starting late, of course it's going to go a little bit later as well. So we're going to get some of the best cherries right through January uh, to enjoy, so not just for Christmas, New Year's and beyond as well. That is good to hear. I think the best way is still to have cherries fresh, but that was Pick a Local Pick SA Ambassador Callum Hand speaking there with some tips about cherries and uh, hopefully it is a good season for the cherry growers because they have had a bit of bad weather and hail affecting them. So hopefully now that it is really into the uh, the Christmas season, hopefully they get a good crop off as well and we're able to enjoy the cherries on our Christmas table. Speaking of Christmas, today is the last day of spring and as of tomorrow, we officially start the countdown to Christmas. You can finally start opening those advent calendars. There have been reports of Christmas trees not doing so well, though, in this wet weather that's been seen in New South Wales. But in the northeast of Victoria, the festive pine trees are growing in abundance. The Shambiran family have been farming in Stanley for more than 140 years, growing apples, cherries and now Christmas trees. So uh, I was interested to know if um, if you do like to go and get your traditional pine tree or perhaps you've got a different sort of tree you like to use. We used to cut down a she-oak or cut a branch off a she-oak and use that sometimes uh, as a Christmas tree at home. So if you um, do a different sort of Christmas tree, not just your, your standard pine, let me know. Text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Annie Brown caught up with orchardist Peter Shambaran to uh, speak about his festive value add. Well, the Chambron family have been here for a long time. The grandparents were miners. That was about 140 years ago, and I inherited the farm when I was 16. I'm now 75. Um, in that period of time, we've grown pine trees. Now we're back into Christmas trees and cherries, apples and chestnuts. Our businesses run on pick your own, and same as come pick your own Christmas trees. We don't charge an entry fee. We tend to like people to come to the farm, bring their family and enjoy themselves. The Christmas trees are $50, doesn't matter what size they are. Um, for, ex- for example, my son went to Ballarat over the weekend and paid $140 for a tree, so $50 is a good value. 
So tell me a bit about the the kind of Christmas trees and prime. This is a different. Grew. This is a different one. This is you can either call these Oregon's or Douglas spruce. The Christmas trees you buy in the shop at Radiata, they're pruned. We don't prune these. They're just naturally grown. This time of the year, they've got that softness at the end of the branches. They're incredible. It's like patting a like a pet a dog's tail or something. <laughs> like they're very beautiful. soft, Peter. Like and, and these... they'll have a nice, really smell about them in yeah. your room. And once again, the pruned ones in the radiator, they tend to bleed on the end, so you'll have a sappy part. The only part you'll have a sappy on these is perhaps the, the, the trunk. So a lot of Christmas tree growers, I think, have been struggling this year, this season, mm. because of all the water around. But how have you been going here? No, we're fine. Um, we've lost a lot of our cherry trees, um, but the, the Christmas trees, they're fine. They're loving it. Um, they've actually liked the cool weather more so than the heat. And because we haven't had frosts on them, they're much better. They're, they're, the frond uh, needles are really good. Mm. Yeah. I guess Stanley's also known for its its pine trees, really, isn't it? It so. is, yes. Yeah, they used to grow these down in the forest, uh, not far from the Magic Forest, but it's no Douglas firs or Oregon um, grown in this area anymore. What made you want to get into the Christmas tree business? Oh, I think farming to survive, we, we need to have something else. Uh, we had cherry trees growing on this area. Uh, unfortunately, the dust off the road, uh, just the cherries were not viable here. So back into Christmas trees, it was a cheap way of doing it because we've been able to clear the land and grow our own seedlings and, uh, and I put them in. The only thing that gets into them and is the rabbits. They may nip them off when they're very young, so they're in various stages. Mm. Um, what's the demand like for Christmas trees at the moment? bit slow at the moment but I think come next week in December I think people will come. We, we had a good year last year and that was our first year and people have been ringing up so we will come back and get them. So, do you have a big Christmas tree in your house for Christmas? Yes we do actually. <laughs> I thought of that before when I was decorating and I'm thinking if my wife saw me decorate she said well why can't you do it? So, um, yeah. Have you put up your Christmas tree yet? No, no. No. Next weekend's job? Probably, yeah. Um, but look, it's a day out in the farm for the children. See how we actually farm with the cherries. Unfortunately, the cherries won't be ready for a couple of weeks. For farmers like ourselves to survive, and I'm not just talking about our, us, it's all small farmers, support us by coming on the farm, support the farmer's market, um, and that's how we will survive. And you'd be surprised the amount of people that actually ask us on the cherry crop how many crops a year do we get? And my reply to it was, only one, thank God. So people don't understand. People say, oh, I didn't think cherries grew on trees. I thought they grew on vines. So people need to come onto our farm. My brother's famous uh, words for any of the children coming onto the cherry orchards, he said, can you whistle? And they'd ask why. And Joe would say, well, while you're whistling, you can't eat our cherries, as a joke. And you see those children now the young adults and as they walk into the shed they're whistling just to remind us they've been here before so you, you meet fantastic people
Peter Shambaran from Europa Gully Orchards and Stanley speaking to Annie Brown there. If you've got an interesting take on Christmas trees, text me 0467 921 or phone 1300 222 We're going to stay with the Christmas theme because uh, rock lobster seems to pop up a bit more in South Australia than where, where I grew up. Rock lobster really wasn't a thing for Christmas, but it's more, uh, more done down here where you've got such ratty access to rock lobsters. Have you started to look for rock lobster for your Christmas table this year. Managing Director of Ferguson Australia Group, Andrew Ferguson, says after a tough few years, it seems this year the local market demand is still there. He told Nick Ward cooking is already underway and they're looking forward to a boom in business. We look forward to it every year and hopefully uh, it's going to be a good one this year. We do target the supermarket, independence mainly. We're um, just currently gearing up, cooking, getting ready for the, for the market for Christmas. So there's plenty of stock available for that over that Christmas week or so. Uh, so it's good news so far in terms of the stock you have on hand? Getting a bit worried last week and the week before when we had all this uh, rough weather. Fishermen aren't able to get out there and go fishing. But hopefully it settles down over the next couple of weeks and we can see some fluid fishing, some, you know, put some days in at sea and you know, bring some lobsters in to, for, for us to market. So the weather really has to go your way over the next few weeks for you to comfortably meet your stock demands? Yes, pretty pretty much, Nick. Obviously, we're still uh, exporting as well. I mean, the export market's been a lot better than I thought it would have been this year. We've had a pretty fluid marketplace and, and routes to market in Taiwan and Vietnam and those sort of places. So that's been quite good up until now, but I'm looking at what's going over on overseas and with the, with the COVID outbreaks and that, it, it is a bit of a worry. We were looking forward to you know, Chinese New Year's, another good time for us usually, but uh, yeah, not so sure what's going to happen this year when we get to that time, how, you know, where, where, we, where we're going to be with the, the COVID outbreaks and where they are. And in terms of your trade to China, I understand that's been somewhat disrupted over the last few years. Yes, yeah, no, no more trade to China. I haven't sent any lobsters into China for the last two, two over two years now, live lobsters anyway. But we've picked up a few markets outside of China, and uh, that's yeah, it's been been well, like anyway a lot more fluid than than it, than it could have been. But uh, obviously, when China locks down, it locks down on a whole lot of other products and they then sort of the domino effect comes back in the markets we're in so yeah we'll see I suppose. Do you have any hopes that things might get better in the future given there seems to be a, a slight shift in signals being given? Well we always we always hope but uh, I can't sit around waiting and and uh, hoping that it gets better we've got to move on and and keep you know keep marketing and finding other opportunities so yes well see that was um, you know, a big market in China we just can't sort of sit still so we'll keep we'll keep a good eye on it that's for sure. Back to domestic lobsters and the lead up to Christmas you've mentioned that uh, you're hoping for good weather to really uh, get your stocks for local markets nice and secured are you able to give any indication at this point where you think lobster prices will be at for domestic markets? Yeah, that's always a hard one, Nick. What I will say is I think they'll be at reasonable prices, the same as they've been over the last couple of years. So, I mean, I think the days of $130 a kilo in the supermarkets, there's certainly... You won't see that this year, that's for sure. But you know, it'll be. It'll be I, I, look at my prediction: seventy, eighty dollars a kilo. I'm not. I'm just. And I know what we're selling in Five Star down there at Port McDonald, and so that's a, about where we've kept it over the last few months. So I, I think it'll sort of stick around that level.
Hopefully they do have a good season after what's been a, a tough time. Managing Director of Ferguson Australia Group and Andrew Ferguson speaking to Nick Ward there about the lobster season as we head into Christmas in South Australia. More to come on the program. It is 12 minutes to one. It's him straight down the ground. That'll be six. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket gets underway. Today, the West Indies take on Australia in a two-test series. This is a test match you won't want to miss. Join ABC Sports coverage of the first test between Australia and West Indies. Live in Perth. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. What do lentils, carp, honey and pippies have in common? Well, they're all foods produced in South Australia and they've all taken out awards at a national competition. One of the winners at the Eat Easy Awards is Pinaru Farms' Pip Lawson, who tells Anita Ward she's pleased to see more appreciation for their sprouted red lentil flower. There was eight really well-known judges and, yeah, they must have cooked something lovely with our sprouted red lentil flower and they all loved it. And, yeah, so we had in the awards dinner on, uh, sorry, it was at drinks actually at a bar um, on the Thursday and, yeah, we <laughs> it was kind of a bit surreal when we heard our name being read out. And these are national awards as well. What does it mean for you guys from little old Pinaroo to, you know, make it big on, on the big stage like this? Not, not that you haven't already, but, you know, a, <laughs> another award, I guess, in, in the catalogue. Yeah, we are just absolutely blown away, to be honest. So we're actually really, really thankful for the judges' time and effort going into this program. It's great when judges recognise good food producers and what we're trying to do because the Easy Award's all about celebrating delicious and responsible food. So they're looking for growers and chefs and restaurants who are trying to do things a bit differently. And, yeah, just to be announced as a winner in front of all the chefs that were there was pretty amazing. Now, on a bit of a, yeah, turn, how are things going with Harvest back at home? Oh, uh, slowly. (laughs) Like everywhere, we're just kind of waiting for the weather to warm up and the soil to dry out. We've still got some pretty big puddles lying in the paddock. Yeah, we have just made a start, though, so hoping for some warmer weather later this week, to be honest. Have you been impacted by any severe weather of late? We had a tiny bit of hail damage when all those storms went through about a fortnight ago. However, I heard over in the Victorian Mallee had quite extensive damage. We didn't have that. But, yeah, you know, some wind damage as well. And obviously, like a lot of farmers in the Mallee region, have got this fungus because there's a lot of water lying around (laughs) so we're dealing with a few issues we're not typically used to dealing with in here in the Mallee. It's absolutely a bit of a a strange season Um, you know we're hearing that machinery and parts and things like that is a bit hard to come by at the moment are you guys sorted on that front? Yeah we're luckily luckily enough to get everything that we need to get you know in regards to having a machine service by our local mechanics so we're very thankful that they were onto it touch wood well we haven't really started we haven't really had any breakdowns (laughs) yet but touch wood that doesn't happen we've been almost bogged a few times but I hear there's a few stories of uh, 
headers being bogged and trucks being bogged, so <laughs> which is different. So in terms of, yeah, I guess what, what the rest of harvest will look like for you, do you have any predictions around how long it could take and um, what's in store? Well, I think if the weather, if we don't get any more rain, I think, and we can get a good run on, we'll still be harvesting probably right up until Christmas this year. So this time last year, we were almost finished, actually. <laughs> um, and we typically start at the end of October. So, yeah, I definitely foresee, depending on the weather and depending on breakdowns, but, yeah, it would be right up until Christmas, if not a little bit afterwards, and hoping for um, some good yields. Pinaroo Farms' Pip Lawson speaking to Anita Ward there about uh, her uh, award-winning red lentil flower. It's certainly been a, a bit of a success story there. They, they came into doing that somewhat by accident, but they, they've done a really good job. So congratulations to those winners of those awards. Finally today, have you ever heard of a finger lime? Finger limes, or citrus caviar, as they're sometimes known, have become increasingly popular. I don't know if you've seen them. They've sort of got those little, um, almost like little eggs, like kind of like caviar, but they're, they're lime green and they're an Australian native fruit. Now, AgriFutures has released a five-year plan to help develop the sector further as it faces competition from other countries trying to develop their own industry with the Australian native fruit. Emerging Industries Senior Manager Dr Olivia Reynolds tells Megan Hughes while it's grown exponentially to take it to uh, any further, an industry body needs to be formed. Australia currently has approximately 20 major finger lime growers and then a number of smaller scale growers produce about 100 tonnes of native finger lime each year. Uh, the farm gate value has grown from about 600,000 per annum in 2012 to over 3 million in 2020. So really exciting growth there. Retail prices range from about $50 to about $120 a kilogram. Where's the demand coming from? So the export market at the moment is larger than the local market as Australian consumers are still familiarising themselves with um, how to use native finger lime in its different forms. They have certainly have a unique taste, they're high in antioxidants and have a range of um, really appealing properties such as high in folate, potassium, vitamin C and vitamin E. And this really highlights the untapped potential for using native finger lime in the nutraceutical um, and even medical industries. A lot of opportunities there that we're still yet to explore. What are the main points in this plan to, to grow the industry further? AgriFutures Australia had identified native finger lime as a potential high growth industry. So we really wanted to invest into an RDNE plan to allow that industry to identify those priorities for industry. So engagement occurred with um, over 30 uh, industry stakeholder groups, including Indigenous groups, producers, processors and research organisations. And they identified five areas for action for the industry. So those areas include varieties, production, products, market and capacity building. So developing new varieties uh, exclusive to Australia will certainly help ensure strong global market competitiveness, uh, minimising waste, supplying high quality fruit and developing new value added products are certainly also priorities for the industry. And it's really an opportunity for us to establish provenance for Australian native, native finger limes um, to help build awareness of the product among our domestic consumers and certainly position Australian finger lime ahead of its global competitors. There's 
limited publicly, you know, available information around fingerline production and certainly further investment in this space as well as capacity building in the industry is also something else that they identified. Where to from here? You've got this plan. How exactly is it going to be implemented? Is there a industry body or is AgriFutures um, implementing it, are growers on board? What's happening? Absolutely. So there is an initiative to develop an industry body um, with one of our scholars at AgriFutures funders at the moment, Jade King. So that's really exciting for the industry. And that's absolutely fundamental because these plans, these RDNE plans, really need to be industry-led. Having a body, and often they start out with our emerging industries as these informal bodies that can actually take that by the reins and drive it forward and, you know, put it in front of stakeholders, potential investors and so forth is absolutely fundamental. And we're certainly there to support them through that RDNE life cycle. And at the moment, we're actually prioritising our investments for the next financial year. And certainly we'll be looking at um, our native food industries, including finger, uh, native finger lime. One of the things that the plan discussed a lot was making sure we have provenance of finger limes and this native fruit because we're seeing overseas countries starting to look at this and, and are potentially developing their own finger lime industry. Why is it so important that this particular emerging industry this of native foods is prioritised in our country? Yeah, look, I think, unfortunately, native finger limes is a good example where we actually have major global competition from countries, including the US, Guatemala and others, such as Israel, France, Japan, Spain and Italy, are also looking to establish finger lime industries using our native species. So I think this is a real opportunity for Australia to um, benefit from, you know, something that's in our own backyard, a species that is native here. So establishing that when people purchase native finger lime, it's, it's actually grown in Australia um, and really establishing that provenance story behind it as well will be key so that we can compete with those international markets. AgriFutures Emerging Industry Senior Manager Dr Olivia Reynolds speaking with Megan Hughes there about getting ahead of these other countries, trying to muscle in on the finger lime industry. They're, it's Australian native fruit, so uh, hopefully it gets a bit of a run on here and not overseas. That's about all I have time for, but today is the first day of the test, uh, Australia versus West Indies, the men's international test at Perth Stadium in Western Australia today. So you can keep listening to Caroline Winter from 1 o'clock or 105 on digital radio or on the ABC Listen app. You'll also find the Drive program with Jill Schiller and Lee Radford on evenings this way as well. And to find out what Caroline Winter has in store for you, she joins me. Good afternoon. Hi, Cass. What's coming up? Well, you would have known that Guns N' Roses played in Adelaide last night, you know, big international rock band making its way back to our shores. We wanted to know what goes on behind the scenes when you feed those kinds of uh, rock stars. Have you ever wondered about that? You know, the logistics, all the other things that happen Makes before they get on stage. Makes me think of that story. I think it was Metallica. They made um, uh, the people 
give them a. Uh, they had to have M and M's with no brown M and M's. That's right. They've all the, got their special yeah. you know, things that they like. <laughs> well, we're going to speak to one lady who was in charge of all of those logistics behind the scenes, and uh, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last for her. So I think it'll be quite fascinating finding out, you know, what really the happens. Diva demands. What, what is it they're asking for? <laughs> we heard on the radio this morning they did go to an Adelaide restaurant and had simple tastes. So maybe not a difficult client, but um, we'll talk about that. And we're also going to chat about virtual reality and travel when you don't get out of your armchair, but you head overseas. Ah, that seems a bit bleak, but maybe it's better than it sounds. I think when I travel, I like to actually be there, but maybe there's some merit in that. You're probably less likely to get sick. Keep listening to your ABC local radio as we approach one o'clock. Afternoons with Caroline Winter. You can have a little bit of a laugh at this one because the woman who was at the centre of this story in Gawler this morning is out and free. It's the first time I've been involved with a cat down a well. Caroline Winter, ABC Radio, South Australia. And- Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.